0: Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia and I'm Yvette and this is episode 23. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and legal practice and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because
1: we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our current events segment, we'll discuss the U.S. 2020 census count, uh, specifically the discussion to include a question about status. Mm-hmm. Legal status legal status for our deep thought segment. We'll check in with Yvette. Now that bar exam results
0: have been released. And for our case segment, we'll discuss Yikwo v. Hopkins, the case that held that a facially race-neutral ordinance in San Francisco still violated the 14th Amendment because of how it was enforced.
1: But before we do that, let's check in because, as you may be able to tell, we're actually recording this in person.
0: Yay! <laughs> we're both in Nashville. Um, I came here for Thanksgiving break to visit Cynthia and my friend
1: I know it's wild. I just like can't believe we're out here in Nashville, Tennessee. Like of all the places to have a reunion, we're in Nashville. So how have you enjoyed Nashville so far? I didn't see you yesterday during the day. So like, how was that? It was cute. We went to the
0: Panthenon. The uh, Parthenon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little creepy because I was thinking about I was wondering what made Nashville's economy so strong that the mayor wanted to create that monument. Uh-huh. Thinking about the South's history with forced labor, I found the whole thing kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. I really like that it's fall here, fall like, that it actually has a fall aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Arizona, it's gotten colder, but there aren't very many trees. It's the desert. Uh-huh. And so, <laughs> and so I haven't gotten to see the leaves change colors, and, like, I forgot how much I liked that, and, like, it's, I don't know, I kind of have, like, a romantic attachment to it, so I like that, and then, uh, we went to Broadway, where, and I thought it was interesting, a lot of flashing lights. Oh, you did go
1: to Broadway earlier we that day? We d- for,
0: like, a hot second, we didn't even really do anything there, because then, we left. I forget why.
1: Yeah. I didn't know, like, Broadway was a thing the first time I came to Nashville, which was just a couple months ago when I was looking for somewhere to live. And my friend and I just went to get dinner there because it was, like, the only place open, like, still had restaurants open, like, at, like, 11 p.m. on, like, a Thursday night when yeah. we were here. Maybe it was, like, a Wednesday. And I, like, got there and I saw the flashing lights and I was just like, wait, what? Like, this is a thing here?
0: hmm You know, it's really interesting. There's a lot of drunk white people on the street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh I definitely be like I'm in the South.
1: Yeah, Tucson's
0: the South, but there's Latinx people everywhere, and I live in like a part of town that's more Latinx, so I don't feel like surrounded by white people.
1: <laughs> also, like it's like the Southwest, which has like a different. It's different. Right?
0: Yeah, it has than, a different like, feel. The deep South. Yeah. Yeah. Tucson's interesting because I feel, like, very racialized there. Like, I think it's really hard being a Latinx person there. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not quite sure that those same dynamics exist here. What do you mean? Like, because we're so close to the border, if you look Latinx, you get racially profiled. But... In a way, different from, like,
1: how you get racially profiled here? Like, what do you mean? Like, what's, like, what is the racially profiling? Like... Like, how are you being racially profiled? Uh, like,
0: I got, I've got, i gotten two speeding tickets. Oh, I got okay. two speeding tickets, like, the first month that I moved there. I, you know, it's probably not going to be, like, admitting this. But, well, actually, no, it doesn't matter. Would speed every single day in California. And, like, <laughs> have, was stopped once. And the cop was really nice and was, like, you know, and, like... But this, also, you're in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, like, it's... Exactly. And it's like, I think it's, like, very racist and... I don't know. It's interesting. Like people in Arizona will see him and will think, "Oh, like he's American, like a citizen." Yeah, he's citizen. Yeah, he's a citizen. And then when people look at Latinx people in Arizona, there's I feel like there's always this underlying assumption that they've immigrated here and that they don't have status legal status i'm glad you mentioned this because i feel like this is something we're gonna i want to talk about when we talk about yikua
1: which like just as a side note when we get to that case i'm glad you brought it up um and i yeah i think you're right in that the sense in the sense that like arizona is
0: immigration it's like it's hyper aware and like hyper In in tucson specifically like we're an hour from the border and like i see like ice and border patrol has a presence as strong as the police. Yeah. You know, like I every day when I'm driving to work, I see ICE, border patrol, highway patrol and like local Tucson police. Yeah. It's a, it's a very policed area. I hate it.
1: <laughs> I can I can imagine that, but it must mm. be nice to be I I've realized I think I've talked about it before that I haven't been in like a dominantly like in a community that see- reflects at all the community in which I grew up in since I left home 8 years ago. So like in that sense I like envy being around so many like Latin Latinx exp- people the community and just yeah cuz like I I I envy that. I miss that to some extent and I don't I don't have it here in Nashville. Like I find little pockets of it everywhere I go and like mm-hmm. I always make like friends with like people when I But, like, it's not the same. So, I I, I envy that. But I don't envy the hyper-policing of the Latinx
0: community at all. Yeah. Tucson is cute. And there's a lot of really good Mexican food. Like, I I I think that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about living. But it sucks that to have that, you also... Well, you don't have to have it. But in the way that it exists right now, it's, like, the good Mexican food is there. But also... I'm being policed all the time I think I feel policed all the time also because I'm always in the fucking immigration detention centers and like <laughs> like I'm yeah my body is not controlled in the way that people who are detained bodies are controlled obviously but I still have to follow their the detention center's arbitrary rules yeah like, the guards ultimately have power over whether I can enter the building yeah and like just little things like Having to wait for the door to be unlocked so that you can move through it, having to ask the guards for permission for things. Like I feel very regulated all the time in in, in Tucson.
1: Yeah, I I can't remember whose book I was reading. Um, I think I'm I'm pretty sure it was Brian Stevenson's book on Just Mercy. I'm pretty sure, but I it might be someone else. It was a while ago that I read it. Uh, that they were talking about, like they were an attorney visiting a client in a prison, and they the The guard made them, kind of like do, made him do extra things. He was like a black attorney. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just the the filling in the form. There was like filling out like the sign in sheet. It was just like a ton of different requirements that like attorneys don't usually have to do. And on top of that, he was strip searched before allowed to go in.
0: Yeah. Oh my god. Ah,
1: which is, I can't imagine. I can't like strip searching to me is just seems like so invasive and like it's 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 just
0: sexual assault. yeah. Yeah.
1: And. And like that's always kind of st- stuck with me that like as attorneys of color, if we're going into these spaces where like people of color there they exist to police and and control and you know, honestly harm people of color, we're we're not escaping that just because we're an attorney.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get into this like in our deep thought segment, but that's why the job has been so hard for me because I feel like. I, I just noticed that the white attorneys get treated differently than yeah, I do. of course. You know, and like they, they gave me such shit about entering the detention center, even though my boss had pre-cleared me beforehand. The, every single time that I went to a detention center for the first handful of times, they gave me a lot of shit. They were like, I don't know what to say, but you're not on the approved list. <laughs> like, just like absurd shit I'm like laughing that. at the way you said that, not
1: what you're saying.
0: <laughs> I, I know, just annoying ass it.
1: bitches that's why respectability politics is a lie like you can dress it's in not a suit it. you can dress up you can talk pretty like and by pretty i mean like white people standards yeah and it doesn't it doesn't matter it's not gonna save us respectability is not gonna save us
0: i know and sort of like i mean i always knew this but i'm like relearning this <laughs> you know or it's like very in my face right now because of the work that i'm doing also, I want to add that part of the reason why the speeding tickets really got to me and, and part of the reason why driving on that highway is so difficult for me every day is that I see these cops pulling black and brown people over and then I go into the detention centers and I do intakes with people who came into ICE custody because of a traffic violation. Yeah. Like I can't tell you how many people were just obviously blatantly racially profiled. There was a DACA recipient who was pulled over for a taillight that didn't work And actually, it turned out that it did work. Yeah. But that person still ended up in detention, you know? And, like, so many people end up in detention because of DUIs as well. I was just reading a case about somebody, like,
1: criminal case who, like, the stop started because of a taillight that didn't work, but it actually did work. Mm -hmm. I think, actually, it's the the book um, for my recommendation, so we'll we'll put that up. And then, okay, and then just generally... So I've had this happen now twice, and I I don't think it's going to be the last time. But I've been in the courtroom and, like, I I dress up when I'm in the courthouse mm-hmm. because, like, that's just the standard of my office. And, you know, I'm always in my blazer. Like, I always wear a sweater and then I change into my blazer. Always, like, I generally wear, wear heels. And um, I'm wearing my, like, badge, right? And someone, people have multiple, like, multiple times asked me if I'm an interpreter. Like, once it happened in open court, I was just sitting there behind the public defender's table. uh, I was just shadowing an attorney. I was just watching that day. And then the the attorney who was at the podium was like, oh, we're waiting for an interpreter. And then the judge stared at me and she's just like isn't that her right behind you in the blue dress oh my god and my like the attorney turned around she's like nope that's an intern with our office a legal intern um, it's just like things like that where it's just like keeps happening and i just blushed and i
0: turned red and i was just this is just gonna always happen yeah this, um something similar happened to me like i was with my colleague who's white and then the guard said something like oh the lawyer and like the family visitor need to be escorted. Like, they thought I was somebody's family member. Yeah, it's all these little like, things. Bitch, I took the lead
1: on that case. Excuse me. I know that just like they kind of just disrupt my day. Like, I, I don't like get like it doesn't bother me in the sense I like, get sad and angry, but I'm just I just laugh at it, but it does like disrupt my day. And I'm just like, why are you disrupting my learning? I get mad. I don't, not anymore. Not at that, not at that. Okay, well, I just wanted to share that for a check-in. So let's talk about
0: the current event in the census. Yvette, why did you want to talk about the census? So it seems like a really mundane topic, but it's important because the census numbers determine funding allocation at the federal and the state level. Uh, It's something that happens every 10 years, and the 2021 is particularly controversial because Trump has been pushing for a question on the census that asks about legal status which many will pr- many predict will have a chilling effect and make it so that undocumented people aren't counted in the census because they're going to be scared to answer that question. And Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary is defending the decision by arguing that the citizenship question is actually going to just bring us more accurate results because it's going to we're now going to be able to tally eligible voters. Yeah, and
1: okay, so I know folks have Probably heard about the census that this is question might be added and whatnot. Can you talk about all the things that the census is used to kind of
0: just assign and allocate? Mm-hmm. I think the so the most probably the most important thing is that it determines how congressional seats are apportioned and like I mentioned earlier, how state and federal dollars are distributed where businesses choose to ship products and build new stores. And also folks rely on these statistics for things like predicting the number of social security beneficiaries. Super, super important. And it ends up shifting the power between states. So Texas, Florida, Colorado and Oregon are expected to gain congressional seats after the 2020 count. And Illinois, West Virginia and New York are expected to lose seats after the count because of how people have shifted where they live. Uh, it's important for voting access too. If a voting district has more than 5% of people who speak a language other than English, they need to provide bilingual voting materials. And undercounting, of course, no surprise, primarily occurs in low income inner city neighborhoods with many people of color living there. The census became really important after the civil rights legislation after civil rights legislation was passed in the 60s, uh, because, and actually what I thought was interesting was that the race questions would have been totally eliminated in the 1970 census because they had been discredited by a lot of people. But the they passed the civil rights laws and those required statistics to determine how to allocate money to be distributed from those bills. And so it stayed on as a result of that legislation. Um, so in implementing civil rights legislation, federal authorities specified for disadvantaged minority groups native folks the api community black folks and latinx folks Uh, and so the the race question on the census remains important for determining which groups are underrepresented and how to allocate the various money that uh, came from the civil rights bills yeah
1: i love i love that explanation because i think it's just so important for folks to realize to know that the census determines how our schools are funded Mm -hmm. like how the like you know federal Taxes money is given back to the states, and that's crucial for like Mm -hmm. roads
0: and hospitals.
1: Yeah, all of that stuff. And then also, just like on the academic side of it, a ton of research is based using Mm -hmm. the census. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're doing you're going to look at a population so many researchers rely on the sen- census data as their just like population yeah. yeah and to be able to determine things and predict behaviors all that thing so for academia itself like it's so important for the census to be reliable and accurate mm-hmm. so i like i just wanted to plug that since we're in academia well i am still <laughs> Okay, so I'm, not, I'm out.
0: I'm out of the academic game. <laughs> Do you want to talk about how the census came about, like its history mm-hmm. and where it mm-hmm. originated? The it originated in the Constitution itself. It requires that the U.S. count everyone residing in the country every ten years to use that data to apportion congressional seats, and it's supposed to be based on everyone who lives here, people who are undocumented and documented. Uh, so. 18, in relationship to race specifically, the history is interesting. 1850 was the first year that the census included questions related to race, and the options were black, white, or mulatto. In 1930, the categories expanded to include white, Negro, Mexican, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Hindu, and Korean. And in 1920, the census stipulated that any mixed person was supposed to report their race only as a non-white race.
1: These things are so complicated. Like, it's just frustrating how the U.S. government, like, l- creates these categories, and then we have to like, adjust our identities to, like, mm-hmm. fit within it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because, like, I, like, every time these, like, I'm just like, wait, why do you get to decide these categories? Why Like, you, then you relump them, and then, like, race and ethnicity is, like, disaggregated. Mm-hmm. So it's just, like, it's just, like, the government, like, <laughs> I don't feel like they're the best at defining these, and, like, this history is just reminding me of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this, because the census is a concrete example of how the law creates race. hmm Prior to the 1960s, the census person who the, they call it the enumerator would determine the race of the person being counted, and like it wasn't <laughs> so like, self-identified. Them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, like, which is like that's how race is created, anyway, yeah. by how you're read and how you're treated as a result. I, mean,
1: I was gonna say that'd be interesting for some of my classmates. Why? <laughs> an interesting experience? Just I don't know. It's just an interesting experience because well, like some the white Latinx people, people specifically. Not just yeah, and yeah. not just that, but like people. I think I. I don't know. People can be very sensitive about how they're read. Right. Um, And so I just think that's so amusing.
0: (laughs) I'm curious about who exactly you're thinking about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Buy me a drink and I'll talk about it later.
0: (laughs) So, and then even when the census allowed for people to self-identify, the enumerator was told to reclassify Mexicans and Puerto Ricans (laughs) as white, unless they were definitely black or indigenous. And then the classification of Mexicans has always been really bizarre, uh, just to really hammer down this point that race is socially constructed and that the law is huge, plays a huge role in that. At first, in 1930, Mexican was a race, and, but it was other non-white. Uh, and then in 1940, it was moved to ethnicity instead of race, and it, they called it Persons of Spanish Mother Tongue. <laughs> And in 1950 and 1960, the category was white persons of Spanish surname, but they only asked that question in five states in the Southwest.
1: This is so (laughs) amusing. Can I, okay, I'm just going to disrupt this conversation for a second to tell you this, like, funny little anecdote that happens over and over where I try to explain people in general, not just, like, white people, but, like, just every, like, people of all races and ethnicities, I constantly have to explain to them that, like, Spanish people are European and mm-hmm. the, and also white mm-hmm. for some people it is so hard for them to understand that the Spanish are not Latinx and that they're not people of color that's true so I just this like this whole is reminding me of that and so I just wanted in case like in case anybody is not clear like if you are <laughs> of Spanish descent like of the country Spain like you're of European descent and you are white you're
0: Caucasian yes
1: you are Caucasian. <laughs> Ah, if you, like, so I just wanted to make that very clear now as we're talking about this. A spicy white. <laughs> no, they don't, they don't eat, like.
0: They're not spicy. They're not eating.
1: No, their food is, ugh, so basic. Yeah, I know. So much
0: jamon. <laughs> yes. Like, uh It must have been really hard to be vegetarian. Oh, I don't know if you visited. I, I was, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I, like, ate potatoes the whole time, which is fine. I love potatoes, but it's just, like, I'd like it's some diversity nutritious. in my food.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So switching focus to talking about the API community, Uh, they have fought many battles to get an accurate count of each ethnicity within the API umbrella. And in 1990, the census had an API category and had people write in their ethnicity. But the census announced that they weren't going to track the write-in answers, making it totally ineffective (laughs) and just for show. They stated that they were only going to tabulate the write-in answers from the longer questionnaire that's sent to one in six households. And so Robert Matsui drafted a bill mandating that the census calculate every single right and answer. And I thought that this 1990 campaign was very interesting because it's also an example of how, like it's, it really, it plays out how the law creates race because the API community When when people first migrate, they don't think of themselves as Asian Pacific Islander. They just get categorized as that once they get here. Mm -hmm. But for various reasons, pan-ethnicity coalitions can be very powerful and really important. And that was the case with this. There was cross-ethnicity coalitions really fighting for this. And the so the organizing happened at the pan asian level even though they were asking to be recognized by their ethnicities but it was still it was like a moment where they came together to to fight for this thing that was really important for funding allocation yeah and that it was very important because millions of funding dollars were at stake i want to pick your brain a bit
1: about what your thoughts are because i have heard analysts go back and forth on this question okay so we it's pretty much established and we all know that if they add the immigration question what's your legal status there's going to be a chilling effect Mm -hmm. right everybody knows that everybody understands that as members of the community in some sense as folks who who might get asked what we think about this Mm -hmm. I've heard analysts go back and forth with whether it's actual risk for someone who has who doesn't have legal status to disclose. Right. Like if this question is added, if someone from my community who I know is undocumented asks me whether they should answer honestly whether they should open the door, I keep going back and forth on what yeah. I tell them because I've heard analysts on these national whatever programs say they're not at all confident that the Trump administration is not going to use this data. Because in previous administrations, you could trust that data that went to one administration, one part of the branch, one agency, if it was required that it's not shared, it wouldn't be shared. And that's kind of been established and we've all kind of operated on that assumption, you know. I think it went it was up in question when things were like DACA right like that was something mm. where there was more uncertainty, but in mm. general, you know when you're thinking about health information, like these things have not this information hasn't been shared even though it's all within the executive branch so what are your thoughts? if someone comes and asks you that question what are your what are you what are you advising them?
0: I would say that if they feel uncomfortable with it, they shouldn't answer because i I see every day what the, how the Trump administration is running the immigration system, and it is terrifying. And yeah, the building blocks of this immigration system were built by other people. You know, shout out Obama, but Trump really has taken the mantle and run with it. Yeah, and Jeff, you know, Jeff Sessions is leaving. Thank God, but he, the people on his team, are immigration experts. Like Homeboy has reversed and uncovered really like, BIA cases that you only know if you're an immigration lawyer. And so... And I could go on and on about the shady things that they do that are just straight-up illegal. Oh, sorry, yeah, I could go on and on about uh, the things that they do that are just straight-up illegal. Like, they've... You know, he Jeff Sessions tried to eliminate the legal orientation program so that people would just... Uh, which is what I do, go into the detention centers and do know-your-rights presentations and provide people legal aid. So people... like. There's no semblance of due process. He's totally okay with people being detained, not knowing their rights, not knowing that there's legal relief that they can apply for and just being deported. You know, he's he's made it so that gender-based violence cases, it's up in question, the validity of the decision that he made, but immigration judges in Arizona are running with it, and so now uh, gender-based violence cases don't qualify for asylum. Those are the two things off the top of my head that I can think of, that of how scary... ICE is and how scary this administration is and so oh specifically more on point with this the Trump administration has started going after sponsors who are undocumented so for a person to be bonded out they need a sponsor and historically people would include their their, they would list an undocumented person as their sponsor and that was that and now ICE has started going after the people that are listed as sponsors. And so I, yeah, if someone were to ask me this question, I would say that if you don't feel comfortable doing it, then don't do it.
1: And that really sucks just because yeah. as we we just finished going through, there's a lot of important reasons why folks do need to be counted. Yeah. You know, so, but I guess that's just the state of the country we live in right now. Okay. Any last things on the census? Mm-mm. So, Yvette, <laughs> I know the bar results just mm-hmm. came out, and well, uh, well, a week ago, a week ago, yeah. So For I wanted, California. A, yeah, yeah. So I wanted you, you were, you wanted to speak about the bar. I did, I did. and I. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because it's an important conversation. So Mm -hmm. let's just start with how are you
0: feeling? Okay, so to make this clear, I did not pass the California bar exam. And I was shocked when I found out because I studied so hard. I started studying before other people did while we were still in school. I really, and I also left the test feeling good. I was shocked and I think uh, I was disappointed because of how much work I had put in. But I it has honestly brought a lot of complicated feelings up for me. Because uh, the last three months at my job have been really, really hard. Like, it's really affected my mental health. My anxiety and my depression have gotten way worse since starting this job and living in Arizona. And there's lots of reasons for that. And I can, like, go into that more, too. And this... Like, like the day before the bar results came out, my my coworker was joking. Anyway, my coworker made a joke and he was like, "Oh, like honestly, if they if they fire me, they'll do me a favor." <laughs> and I in my head, I was like, "Honestly, if I don't pass the bar, they'll do me a favor." I didn't say it out loud because I like I don't like jinxing things. I do believe in juju and putting out energy, but that was how I felt, and I, I felt that way because of how difficult it has been to get out of bed every day and do this work. And I think I'm I'm still processing and trying to decide my next steps, but honestly, my my spirit and my soul is telling me that I need to do something else. And I think that I do believe in signs from the universe and it has felt more and more like this is a sign that I need to pivot away from what I'm doing, at least for a bit.
1: I think that's so important to share, and I'm glad you're sharing it. Because I've heard like to be clear, like not passing the California bar exam is like something that happens to so so many people. Mm-hmm. But it's but some... people
0: aren't public about it. Exactly. Yeah. And like Michelle I... Obama and Hillary Clinton didn't pass the first time. Yeah. Kamala Harris too. Yeah. And she's now the Attorney General of California. Well now she's the <laughs> senator.
1: Oh yeah. Oh. She was the Attorney General yeah, of California. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so, so many women of color specifically, right. too. And, but I feel like it's one of those things that we're, like, the community or just, like, the kind of unspoken rules means that you're, like, it's a it's a shame you have to carry w- with yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and so I love that you're sharing it because it just, like, moves away from that. It's, like, it's, it's just, yeah, to, I feel like putting it out in public and not letting it have that, like stigma that Mm -hmm. our community wants to make it feel takes away the power from it yeah so I'm really glad you're sharing it for it because I'm sure some of our listeners themselves Mm -hmm. have not passed the bar
0: Mm -hmm. so I'm glad we're talking about it yeah that's why I wanted to do it because I know that the stigma exists and like even though I don't even really want to be in this profession I still felt disappointed in myself and I wanted to share because I I don't know I think I don't want us to present as People who are successful all the time, like these Stanford law grads, these Stanford law students, it's not true. Failure happens to everybody, and like I wouldn't even categorize this as a failure. I think it's an opportunity for reflection. (laughs) And so, yeah, I want people to know like what's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you mentioned that like your job has been hard, and it's so hard. Mm -hmm. So what, like, (laughs) what do you think? Why has your job been so hard? Like, what, what about it specifically? So,
0: oh god, where do I even start? Okay, so first, I was talking about this earlier. Being in the immigration detention centers really, really affects my mental health because when I'm doing intakes with people, because one, I'm very empathetic, and so, and also I experience depression, so I know what it feels like. And when I talk to people, I can—they're t- demoralized. Mm-hmm. They're, and it's I. So I go in and do the Know Your Rights presentation, and then afterwards I can do an individual interview with anybody who wants one so I can kind of explain more specifics about their case and guide them, uh, providing them resources so that they can represent themselves. And so I hear story after story of some of the worst trauma that you can ever imagine. And And then so they went on this harrowing journey to come to the U.S. hoping for a better life. Like, I, I had a young woman say that she just wants to stay in the U.S. so that she can experience happiness for the first time in her life. And I, I do this. I hear the trauma. I work my ass off to help them. And it doesn't really matter because the rule of law does not exist. I'm sorry for all the people who want me to be like the U.S. legal system's main cheerleader. But it doesn't. The Arizona judges, The Arizona judges don't even know immigration law. It's insane. Like, I know it better than they do. It doesn't matter, though. They don't need to know it because their job is to deport people. That's it. And it's just heartbreaking. Like, I was working with a woman who experienced some of the worst gender-based violence. I've seen just horrific, even thinking about it. And I normally, like, we review their asylum application. We provide them country conditions. We prep them for their hearing. But that's the extent of the work that we do because we see so many people that we can't provide anything more in depth than that but this woman really touched me she because she's from guatemala and so and like that's important to me because i'm central american and in this context it's very hard to be central american this current moment and so i decided to write her a full asylum brief because i thought one that's what she deserves she deserves quality representation like that and then also like you know i felt like i needed to convince this judge that she deserved asylum i worked for two weekends on that brief and she was already deported, you know? And, like, that's that's one story that I chose to highlight, but that's every that's every day. Mm-hmm. And the drive is exhausting. And it sucks because it's intentional on the government's part to put these detention centers in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. Like, I have to drive an hour and 20 minutes from Tucson to get to Florence, Arizona. And Florence, Arizona is a depressing place. it's a It's a prison town, literally. There's... The ice detention centers and then there's a ton of prisons in the area and it's like that's the economy of the town Mm -hmm. everyone that lives in Florence is like a guard at these facilities and there's there's only fast food in in the town which seems like a small thing but actually like no I've like gained weight because I have to my you know because I come home exhausted I don't have time to make myself lunch for the next day and so I have to go to Sonic and get like buffalo wings to, to eat lunch. Um, and uh, also like it's, even when I do have time to make lunch, oftentimes it doesn't work out because I don't have access to a fridge in the detention centers. And so like my food will go bad if if I try and bring it in on a day when I'm going to the detention center. And then, and then the fucking guards, like I'm telling you this, there's one woman in particular who has decided not to like me, and every single time I go, she makes my life so difficult. Like, there was was one thing that they did that really pissed me off. Like, they, so I had scheduled a visit with my client, and homegirl was delighted to to, to ask me if, she was like, oh, wait, you were the person that was supposed to come yesterday, right? And you were so late that your client didn't even want to see you anymore. And I was like, I have no idea who, who you're talking about. That's not me. And so I was like, really weirded out. And then I talked to my client. And I asked her about it, and she was like, Oh yeah, they brought me out yesterday. And when I asked when my lawyer was coming, they were like, Your lawyer's always late. Like you just need to wait. And she was waiting for hours because they, it's like because they got the date wrong. And Homegirl is like gleefully telling me this. Oh, like what kind of people? What kind of people? Are they, you know,
1: and I'm curious, like the guards, um, because it's Arizona, I'm imagining they're not all white, right? No. Uh, this woman is
0: Latina, I think. Yeah. That, like, that was my experience when I was in, in Dilly, in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really sad to see like people of color adopt anti-immigrant attitudes. You hate yourself if you have that view. Yeah. There's other reasons too, but I'm not, I'm not going to say that on air.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, it's hard for that to be your everyday, And yeah, just, I like that you framed like this, the getting your bar results as a new opportunity and like an opportunity to like reflect whether you want to keep doing this work. So what are you thinking you want to do like as your next steps or have you thought of what other work you'd enjoy doing? And I know you have certain restrictions, right? Because, like, now we have, like, this huge-ass fucking debt from law school that we have to repay, and the, we have to think about the loan repayment program and whether, you know, what work we can do, whether we can pay back our loans, so. I
0: know. It's funny. I talk so much shit about the people, like, a corporate claiming that the bar loans or that, sorry, that the law school loans that they took out are the reason why they did it. I'm like, honestly, I'm like, honestly, that's, like, a smart move on your part. <laughs> it's like I would never do that, but it's like I it, it's a burden. It's something that I have to think about now. Yeah, but I feel I feel lucky, honestly, in comparison to other people who might want to leave the legal profession because uh, Stanford's loan review program is uh, defines what jobs qualify very. Generously, like I don't need to be in legal practice. I just need to be doing something where my JD gives me an advantage for them to pay me. Um, so I'm like, that's you know that that gives me more freedom than other people who like have really strict restrictions on what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think like if you were to ask me what my ideal position would be, I think it would be uh, to work in media and to. Like I, if I could make Bronas my full time gig, that is what I would want. And so yeah, I do. I want to devote more attention to the podcast and devote more attention to the ways that it can become profitable. You know, because I know that there's people like Prisca who are interviewing later today who have made a career out of this work, and I want that because I want freedom. Uh, I don't. I. I think. <sighs> I think also one of the things that that has been really hard for me is like, I just, I don't like, I don't like office environments. I want a job where I have more freedom, where I have an actual work-life balance. Another reason why my, the past few months have been really hard is that I don't have a social life. Like I, even, even when I just, when I leave the office right at five, I don't get home until 6.30 and like at that point all I have, because I have to wake up so early to, dr- to drive to work the next day, all I have time to do is, like, make myself dinner and do, like, one chore errand, and then I go to sleep, you know, like, I don't really have a social life, I don't really have a life outside of work, and I don't want that anymore, I, I've lived my life like that for a really long time, and, like, more and more, I'm, I'm getting sick of it, yeah, and, like, I don't mean, know, there's lots of things that interest me, like, teaching interests me, at the collegiate level. And I, will, I also want a job where I can write more creatively. So I, th- I know the things that I want. And like I'm telling you, like my number one thing would be to make cinema as profitable. I know the things I want. I don't know exactly what my next step is going to be. But I need a... But the thing is, like, I need a break. Mm. Like, I haven't, I haven't had a break for longer than two weeks since I was 15 years old. Can you, can you <laughs> believe that? Like, yes. yeah, I... I think I just, I want to save up a little bit of money and then I I want to rest. I want to travel before I figure out my next thing because I I want to live a life where my career is not the center of my life. And I also want to do work that brings me joy because I've never once felt that practicing law brought me joy I did it because a problem like because oppression exists and I felt like I had a skill set that would allow me to help and I I just realized that I deserve to be happy too you know I do this work because I think because I want Latinx people to live a life that is free and be and, you know be able to have happiness and it's like, I fight so hard for, uh, for other people to have that, at least a piece of that, and I'm not even, I'm not doing that for myself. And like these desires that I've had to, to have a career that's more focused on, where the main focus of my work would be creating things. And utilizing the creative side of me is something that I wanted for a really long time, but something that I didn't allow myself to pursue because I felt obligated to give back to my community because of the privileges that I've gained from going to Yale and Stanford. I, I think that there's lots of ways that I can do good in the world. And I think me being happy is the first step to, to creating that good change. Israel uh, reminded me of this Gloria Anzaldúa quote, if I change myself, I change the world. And that is something that I want to live fully and deeply every day, starting now.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing so much. (laughs) Anything else you want to add before we move on to the case? Yeah,
0: people want to help me out. They should hit the Venmo and then also at Sidabronas. And then also that people should book us for gigs. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. And pay us. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Yikwo v. Hopkins. So just as a general intro to the case, we're throwing it way, way, way back. This case was decided in 1886. And the reason we're talking about this case and why we think it's important, it's like this was the first Supreme Court case to find that unequal application of the law violated the 14th Amendment. So it's actually, it's just like, it's a seminal case. It's important. (laughs) It's the the first of its kind. (laughs) Uh, And so I'll just go over the parties and the facts just a little quickly. So Yikwo and Wo Li, Wo Lee's Li the unnamed plaintiff, but he's also his case was also tied.
0: Mm.
1: Similar they were the same facts basically. Mm-hmm. And so Yikwo and Wo Li, they both operated a laundry business in San Francisco without a permit and they were the plaintiffs. And I I saw this so I'll include it, but I, I don't I don't remember the this for Wo Li, but I know for Yikwo, uh, they mentioned that he immigrated from China in 1861. So he's an actual Chinese immigrant. But So I'll just, I'll say why that's important later. And the defendant in the case is Peter Hopkins, which is the city's sheriff. And I just want to clarify, I literally, even though I've read defendant so many times, because I've just been in criminal law for so long, I literally forgot that this is what you call the person in civil cases too, which is why I was so confused last time. So I finally went back through my law notes and realized defendant is also used in civil cases. So that was a nice little thing that was, that we confused in one of our previous episodes that I just wanted to clarify now. Okay, so in 1880, San Francisco, this is the facts. San Francisco passed an ordinance that required all laundries in wooden, wooden buildings to hold a permit issued by the, the city's Board of Supervisors. And the reason that was important is because San Francisco like had a lot of fl- fires that like, destroyed a lot of San Francisco, so they just kind of controlled what happened in, in wooden buildings. But it was completely up to the board who received a permit. So it wasn't, like, there weren't criteria or certain, like, requirements. It was just up to the Board of Supervisors. So here's what you need to know, though. of the city's laundry businesses were run by people of Chinese descent. And so not just Chinese immigrants, but also people who were of Chinese descent Mm -hmm. and hadn't immigrated themselves. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make the distinction. So it's talking about both. Mm -hmm. None of them, not a single one of them was given a permit. Like none of them received a a permit. And so more than 150 individuals of Chinese descent or from China had been arrested for operating laundries in wooden buildings because I think of all the laundry services, most of them, like most of them were in wooden buildings. And so everybody basically in the laundry service economy business had to apply for permits. And so this resulted in a lot of folks of Chinese descent being arrested. So Yikwo and Woli... They both operated a laundry business without a permit and then they refused to pay the $10 fine and so they were jailed by the sheriff and which is, that's why the sheriff is the named defendant. Woe had his laundry services for 22 years in the same premises and the fire wardens had like inspected it and they found it to be completely in compliance. Like the way, like all of it was operating, like there was no, like they were doing what they needed to do to prevent fire and that was the exact same thing for Lee. Those are the same facts. So via habeas corpus, they argued that the fine and the discriminatory enforcement of the ordinance violated their rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And I just wanted to include a side note on habeas corpus, because I know that's not something that rolls off the tongue or is common knowledge. So a habeas corpus, all that it means is it's an avenue through which someone imprisoned can petition a court objecting to their detention and demanding to come before a court. So it's a process by which a court can determine the lawfulness of a person's detention. And this is an extremely, extremely important right. It's a human right. So in the inter-American court system, which is like just like the international system of, of Latin America and the United States and, and Canada, mm-hmm. the right of habeas corpus is considered non-derogable, meaning even in, in dire situations of war or national security, you cannot temporarily stop respecting this right. You can't stop it at any point, which there's some rights that you can, right? Like freedom of movement, that's a derogable right. You if for it some reason be. No, but like if you're thinking like they need to stop entry in or entry because there's just been a major whatever, that's a derogable right. Habeas corpus is not one of them, but it doesn't mean that it's always respected. And yeah. think Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Think 9/11. Where people are just imprisoned indefinitely. Okay, so I think the issue is kind of clear, but Yvette, do you just want to spell out
0: the issue? Yeah, so the question was if the unequal enforcement of the city ordinance violated Yikwo and Wo Li's rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The procedural history of this is that the California Supreme Court and the Circuit Court for California denied the claims by Yikwo and Wo Li, so this went up to the Supreme Court. The holding was that the biased enforcement did violate the Equal Protection Clause, even if the law was impartial on its face. So the law didn't explicitly say, we are not going to give permits to Chinese Americans or to Chinese immigrants. It appeared as though it was a law that was going to be applied to everybody. But because of the way that it was enforced, they decided that it did violate the Equal Protection Clause. And surprisingly, it was a unanimous decision.
1: Yeah, so to get into the reasoning a bit, and there's, like, some some good quotes that I'll read from here. It's not a particularly interesting opinion, so I don't recommend anyone, like, goes out and reads it. Like, it's it's really boring, and there's so many parts that are just, like, really unnecessary. So yeah. I'm just going to read to y'all the highlights. Like, these, this is the good bits. This is, like, where this law comes from. So basically, the 14th Amendment, like, the first thing they, they come to a conclusion and they clarify is that 14th Amendment protects persons within the United States, not just citizens, right? So they just clarify that and like go forth from there. So this is... Uh, I don't want to read this whole quote, but... Well, I'll just read this whole quote. I won't read both of them. <laughs> so, though the law itself be fair on its face and impartial in appearance... Yet, if it is applied and administered by public authority with an evil eye and an unequal hand, so as practically to make unjust and illegal discriminations between persons in similar circumstances material to their rights, the denial of equal justice is still within the prohibition of the Constitution. And they have this other nice quote about how the state in passing its law, even though in writing it, it writes it neutrally, it does so with a mind so oppressive and evil. I just like that they use that language and kind of point out how a state can be nefarious. I'll include that quote on our website. So folks want to read it. So that so that was just basically the reasoning. It was like, look, not a single person of chinese descent has received a permit and all caucasian people except one white woman who's sorry it's just this funny note on the case anyways all caucasian people have been given a permit that unequal enforcement is just shows that the state has this evil intent and i'm using the word evil because they use it i don't believe it and because it's evil, evil.
0: Oh, you don't believe in evil?
1: I don't believe in good ben and evil. <laughs> I work in criminal law, okay? I, those terms are used way too righteously. Jeff Sessions is evil. I, I don't believe in good and evil. I believe in humanity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyways. <laughs>
0: Moving on to the discussion. The impact of Yikuo has been a double-edged sword because it set the standard for discriminatory enforcement very high there's no no reason for it is shown and the conclusion cannot be resisted that no reason for it exists except hostility to the race and nationality to which the petitioners belong and in which the eye of the law is not justified and also like all say that later cases made it so that if law is being struck down that's facially neutral the there needs to be proof of discriminatory intent so it's like this law was, this decision was weakened later on. But no,
1: it's coming from this. Like, you're seeing this where they found discriminatory enforcement um, because the intent was so clear, right? Like, they had the numbers where it's, like, not a single one out of, like, over 150, not a single one has given a permit. And so, like, discriminatory intent, like, kind of, like, is born from that where it's, like, you have to have statistics that show almost, like, 100% Discrimination, you know, so I like I see this as exactly where that's born from. You know, like YIKWO, the standards, like it was just so it was so obvious and so clear to anyone who even like glanced at it that hence like discriminatory intent like just go goes off assuming that this is what discrimination looks like. Only when it's like a complete bar. This is then it's like the intent. So I feel like this this the facts of this case lent the high
0: standard to be born Mm, no i mean so it it has changed since then because now you can't like the statistics were that no chinese person had been given a permit now you can't just show that discrimination exists you also have to prove intent which is uh gleaned from context based on actions and words which is why like that's why the in the muslim ban case they were looking over Donald Trump's tweets and his public comments to try and determine intent.
1: Yeah, but, like, statistics do matter for proving intent and, like, its impact, and, like, it's still a part of an analysis, but it's not, like, unless the statistics are this, like, telling, like, this like this high, they, they're constantly re- disregarded. And I think it's because of this. Like, I, not mean? because of this, but this is part of why when you in those cases, when you're trying to use statistics to prove intent, it's so consistently disregarded because it's like the numbers aren't high enough. Mm-hmm. Like it's not clear enough that it's like just completely barring everybody. Because I've read cases where you're like, yes, intent is what you're proving. Mm-hmm. And when the statistics are almost at the level of they they are used. They have been like used to prove intent. But like when they're anything less than like when it's just like 60 percent instead of like 90 percent they're not as compelling and i think it's born from like our understanding of yik wo as what discriminatory
0: enforcement looks like yeah it it is a high standard no reason for it is shown no reason for it exists except hostility to the well i don't know you you could interpret that language differently it's unfortunate the courts haven't Yeah. And then I do want to note that like, so that's, so that's one
1: side of what I view of what Yikwo, the impact it's had. But I think it's also important because it just like cemented, even though a law is race neutral, it doesn't mean it's not going to be discriminatory, which I think like wasn't at all clear. And it's still not at all clear to people in our society today, where they see like, oh, it's race neutral on its face, that the analysis doesn't end there. And I also like that this case, like, Firmly, firmly established that the 14th Amendment protects people and not just not just citizens. Okay, And then one other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of just like why I, I think this case is important is that like I wanted to stress like this case is from 1886 and. It's clear that like Chinese immigrants have been here for generations already at that point yeah. which I think is difficult for some people to understand like mm-hmm. the it this case highlights how long of a history the Chinese community has in California and hence the United States
0: mm-hmm.
1: because they the Chinese community like so many other communities are treated as like you're not that American like when is when did your family migrate here like mine has been here since like the 1800s since like well for a lot of the like some chinese community that's also true for them yeah and one like your how united statesian you are should is not dependent on like how long your family has
0: been here what even is united statesian like oppression hostility well whatever it (laughs) it means to be a part of this country um to be
1: a part of its culture and its fabric social fabric so many hot dogs and oppression but that's what i'm saying it's not it's it's this chinese community they're also part of that but like we're not like why aren't they're also part of it me and my mexican and chicanos we're also part of what it means to be united statesian but we're constantly excluded for one reason or another and so i just wanted to point out like for all those people who when you think united states you don't think like chinese americans or like folks of chinese descent you don't think of them as part of united states you're wrong Because they are a part of it. So like when we define the United States, like we shouldn't just define it as one thing. It is all these things because people have been here creating this, this country and this community for a really long time. And so it's, it's ridiculous that like we continue to enforce this like, white as the norm, white like culture as the culture of the United States, like no, it is has been so much more for so much longer. It just hasn't been given that recognition.
0: Yeah, I want to learn more about what life was like for Chinese and Japanese migrants in like the early 1900s, because I they were like very established communities. Like there have been like the Chinese Association of San Francisco has been around since the 1800s. You know, I think it's like there's an institutional history that I don't know a lot about and I I would want to learn more about and the this the what you were talking about earlier came up in the my census research too because enumerators were instructed at one point um like when they would ask people what their race was if somebody said american they were supposed to say they were supposed to classify that as white and if somebody but if uh, it was a person of color then they were automatically supposed to be categorized as black
1: yeah (laughs) well the census Okay, well, that's all I have for you, Quo. Do you want to add anything else? Okay. Yeah. Moving on to recommendations. Um, my recommendation for this week is I, uh, my friend Becky, who is here with me in Nashville, and has been a great, great partner. She read Asada's autobiography, Asada Sh- Shakur, and she recommended it to me and I started reading it and I really love it. I think it's it's important history and I've just really started diving into more kind of the United States violent oppression of black radicals. For example, like I was learning more recently about how the Philadelphia Police Department bombed the MOVE, yeah. M-O, capital M-O-V-E, mm-hmm. organization and, mm-hmm. like, destroyed that black community that mm-hmm. was, like, because so many houses burned down. Like, literally, the Philadelphia, like, police department dropped a bomb um, on this house in a neighborhood. And so, and, like, so many people died and they did it knowing that there were children inside of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been learning more about that history and I think, like, learning more about... Um Asada Shakur's near death by the New Jersey Police. and then her treatment and her case is part of that. And so I'm I recommend it to folks. it's a, it's amazing. It has a great foreword by Angela Davis and Lennox S Hintz. and it's it's a page turner, and she's just such a compelling writer. and this yeah, is important, is. this is important, important history. So I, I really recommend it. And I don't know if anybody wants to go into exile, like, you know, take inspiration from this book.
0: Yeah, I I also really enjoyed that book. I recommend it as well. Uh, I want to recommend a book of short stories called The Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. I hope I pronounced her name right. Uh, She has has become one of my favorite writers. I read her novel, The Namesake, and I finished it in one sitting because I was so captivated by her portrayal of Indian-Americans. I think it's, she writes really beautifully and creates really complex characters that make you feel so i recommend it great um yvette it's been so lovely
1: to be able to record an episode in In person person. this might be the last in who knows how long so (laughs) enjoyed it
0: Bye.
1: bye I my dogs hold heat, control the whole street And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet.